From time to time, we all have jobs or assignments or chores that we don't look forward to doing, but they are necessary things, and so we do them. I've been asked tonight to do a job like that. Uh, it's a topic that I don't enjoy talking about or preaching about, or for that matter, putting into practice, but it's a necessary one. I've been asked to review a subject that we really would rather never have to discuss, and that's the subject of church discipline. Tonight, for a few minutes, we want to review what we know from the New Testament about the command that God has given that we withdraw ourselves from those who are unfaithful. Um, as I said, it's not a pleasant topic. We'd rather not have to discuss it, but it's a necessary one. Now, it's one of the hard things that we're called upon to do. Unfortunately, because it is a hard thing, some people want to ignore what we will see again are very plain instructions from the Scriptures about disciplining unruly members. We can't ignore it. Although many do, we can't ignore the plain teachings of the, the Scripture about this because, first of all, it is simply the will of God. And we do it because it is the will of God. But secondly, if we understand all that's involved in church discipline, we understand it is in the best interest of everyone concerned. And so we do it because we love man and God. And so we do what he has taught us in this regard. So we'll spend a few minutes tonight reviewing what we have talked about in time past, the importance of church discipline, of withdrawing ourselves from those who are unfaithful to God. Thank you for being here tonight. Uh, after the time change, it gets dark so early. It seems like we're meeting in the middle of the night. and It's just early evening. But we're glad that you've come out on this dark Sunday night to join in uh, in the worship of God, singing praises, praying to Him, studying from His Word. We thank you for being here, and we uh, look forward always to opportunities to be together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're glad that you're here, and for any and all who are visiting, thanks for coming. We want you to come again. We don't always talk about such unpleasant topics, I assure you. If you're visiting and you see this as something that seems... Uh, hard to take, we agree, but it is a necessary subject. Who are we to withdraw from? We are to withdraw from certain individuals who are identified in the Scriptures. First of all, we are to withdraw for those who sin against brethren and will not repent. In the text that Ricky read for us earlier from Matthew chapter 18, it says, If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, tell it, let him rather be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. As you observe that instruction, I think it's obvious that no specific sin has been identified. It didn't say what the trespass of this offending brother was. And that being the case, then we are left to the conclusion that any sin could lead to this action. Any sin that, some, that a Christian commits and won't repent concerning that sin, whatever it may be, if there's a sin that a brother won't repent of, there's a process described here in this passage, and it can ultimately lead to this unfortunate action, uh, the whole church taking an action to let the man be regarded as a heathen and a publican. I think in this, right from the start, one of the things that we want to stress is that the purpose of this is clearly an effort to restore uh, the one who has sinned. That's what this is all about. I hope nobody ever loses sight of that uh, 
uh, desire, of that motive, of that, of that purpose for this whole process is to restore someone to a right standing with God. This is talking about a brother who sins and he won't repent. What do we do? Well, we go through a process. Uh, and all of it designed to try and get him to repent. And so, uh, to, from whom would we withdraw? From those who sin and will not repent. Specifically, we're told that this would include those who are engaged in immoral deeds, Christians who are engaged in immorality. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, by the way, is a passage that we'll be citing quite a bit in our study. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul said, I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer, a drunkard, an extortioner, with such a one know not to eat. Here Paul identifies several sins. Some of them would be included in what we would generally categorize as immorality, like fornication and drunkenness. But notice in that same list is, a, is the sin of covetousness. Uh, and so... So any sin, as we said earlier, can lead to this. Certainly, many of the sins uh, that might lead to this would include acts of immorality. Uh, so, if a brother is engaged in immorality, we would be led to this action if he won't repent. The New Testament also identifies false teachers as those who might receive this discipline. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning verse 3, he said, if Paul says to Timothy, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Have you ever known that to take place? This is pretty rare, unfortunately. Probably should have been done a lot more through the years. Someone who is teaching uh, words that are not the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and not the doctrine which is according to, holy, uh, to godliness. That is, they're teaching some false doctrine. If they're doing that, they should be disciplined. I, I, I'm not sure that I've ever personally witnessed that sort of thing take place, but it could, I suppose. And closely in conjunction with that would be those who cause division. Notice in Romans 16, verse 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. This, again, is really rare. Have you ever known someone who was withdrawn from because they caused division in a local church? Uh, probably it's pretty rare. I don't know that many of us would have, would have had that experience. But the, the counterpart question is, have you ever known a brother or sister to cause division in the church? Oh, yeah, we probably could all say, yeah, we've, we've known of that. We've certainly known of some folks who, who were divisive in a local congregation. Have you ever known them to be withdrawn from for that? Well, maybe not. So that tells us that probably we should be more, more careful in application of this concept, those who cause division. And in sort of a catch-all expression, Paul says that we should withdraw ourselves from those who walk disorderly. Notice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you will draw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. Notice the, the walketh disorderly there. I understand that that expression actually comes from a sort of a military background. And you think of a, of a troop of soldiers marching in rank, and they are in step with one another. 
And so you see, maybe there's a hundred soldiers here marching, and they're all right, left, right, left. But about halfway back in the in the troop is a fellow, and he's just exactly the opposite. When they go right, he goes left. And he's just out of step. Well, that is sort of the expression here, and I believe that's the origin or derivation of this walketh disorderly. Out of rank, not in step, not doing what he's supposed to do as others are doing what they ought to do. He's not doing that. So notice, you would draw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly. Now, what all would that include? Well, here's a little, here's a little piecing together of some, some verses there in 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, he said that. Then later in the same chapter, in verse 14, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. So this action, Paul said, should be taken in regard to anybody who would not obey our word by this epistle. So if he's violating something that was taught in the epistle, the epistle we're talking about is 2 Thessalonians. If he obeys not what is written in that epistle... He should have this action taken against him. We'll go back to chapter 2, verse 15. What did he say in that epistle? He said, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. In 2.15, he says, Do everything you've ever been told. Do everything we told you to do when we were there in person. Do everything we've told you to do when we've written letters to you. Well, if he won't do that, then... Have no company with him. Take this disciplinary action. He's walking disorderly. So by putting together those three verses, all in Second Thessalonians, you get the idea that Paul is saying anything, everything. You've got a Christian and he won't do what he's been taught to do by the word, inspired Word of God. You should discipline this person. You know, we usually think of taking this action maybe against somebody who has uh, quit attending the worship services, for instance. Or, or maybe someone who has become engaged in some kind of immorality. Maybe a fellow leaves his wife and takes up with another uh, woman. Well, certainly those would be appropriate things, but it's not limited to that. And I, I think we've got to make sure that we understand that this is not a limited thing. It's not limited to just certain, very extreme cases of, of disobedience and refusal to repent, but could, in fact, be applied to anything. So from whom would we withdraw? We would draw from a Christian who has become involved in sinful activities and will not repent. Now that's, of course, an important distinction. A, A Christian who sins and will not repent. We are Christians. We all sin. When we sin, we must repent. But if we've got a Christian who sins and won't repent, even though many efforts are made to try and restore him, if a Christian won't repent, this action should be taken. All right. So that's what that's the that's the object of this action. That this identifies the person that needs this action. So how do we do it? What's involved in this disciplinary action? Well, first of all, the scriptures tell us to note that man or mark them. Look at a couple of verses. Second Thessalonians three verse fourteen. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. So the first part of this action is taking notice of it, being aware that the situation exists. Now that requires us to be perceptive, right? Uh, how could we note that man if we don't even know him or know anything about him? We've, na- we've never taken the time to express any care or concern or interest in his spiritual well-being. Uh, this stresses our need to 
be involved with one another and to know what's going on in one another's lives. You know, there's, a, there's old brother so-and-so over there. I don't know the first thing about him. Well, how can I be effective in, in restoring him if I don't even know him, him at all and I, and I don't even know that he's be, been involved in, in a situation where he needs help? We're to note that man. And then in Romans 16, verse 17, it says, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. Notice the expression here, to mark them. Through the years, I've known of some brethren who've almost acted as though this idea of marking an individual, it's almost like a mystery term. It's, it's, it's some kind of a ritualistic thing that is done. We mark him. That's really not the case at all. To mark them simply means to identify them, to make it known, to alert folks to the situation that exists. And so to note them is to be aware, to mark them is to, uh, to acknowledge that the situation exists wherein this person is not living faithfully to the Lord. Uh, so that would be the first, the first step, obviously. The situation has to be identified, it has to be made known. And then, as we already read, as Ricky read for us earlier, a process should be followed, a process of attempting to restore this person. Withdrawing from them is not our first effort. Uh, withdrawing ourselves from him is not the very first thing we would do. It would actually be the last thing that we do in our effort to restore him. It's not the first step in the plan. But if we're going to start that plan, we have to note the situation and we have to be alerted to it. And then the passages tell us to withdraw ourselves. We've made this point plenty of times in the past, but I don't think it can be overemphasized. Note the biblical terminology here. Withdraw yourselves. The New Testament does not say, does not say, it never says, you cannot find in the pages of the New Testament, it never says withdraw fellowship. Now that's become the common vernacular. That's the way most people refer to this. We're withdrawing fellowship from so-and-so. Uh, unfortunately, if we, if we allow ourselves to use that non-biblical terminology, it lends to an error that we want to discuss as we get a little further in the, into our lesson. So, we've tried to stress, and I think you all are very good about this. I think you've understood the point over the years. We don't talk about withdrawing fellowship. The New Testament never talks about withdrawing fellowship. The New Testament tells us to withdraw ourselves. And so, what's actually being identified there is, is to break off our social relationship with such an individual. Look at this terminology. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the traditions which he received of us. Again, just, just pointing that out. It's not withdraw fellowship. Never. In the New Testament. Never. It's always withdraw yourselves. Now, this instruction was, was in the epistle to the church at Thessalonica. And so the church was uh, encouraged to take this action. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, as we mentioned earlier, we'll look at it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he, he encouraged or instructed, commanded the church at Corinth to take this action. So it should, it should often be, and rightfully should be, the collective action of a local congregation. But it's not exclusively a collective action, it's sometimes an individual action. Look what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. Verse 3, beginning, if any man teach otherwise, consent not to wholesome words, even to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. 
from such withdraw thyself. Do you see that? Now, this is, this is a, a, an interesting point, I think, that we really want to stress. Uh, this was a, a, an instruction to an individual Christian. It was not. This, this epistle, 1 Timothy, wasn't written to a church. It was written to an individual. I, I think that a lot of times it is the opinion that this withdrawing ourselves is only a collective action. In other words, if the church doesn't do it, then I don't have anything to consider in the matter. If the elders don't lead us in withdrawing from an individual, then there's nothing I can do about that. Or, if this, if this individual... Uh, uh, first of all, if the church won't do it, what should I do? Well, I'm still commanded as an individual Christian, right? Now, we got another problem to deal with. If the local church won't discipline a, a person who needs to be disciplined, then we got some issues to work out in the local church. And we're going to have to really get serious and talk about that. But I'm obligated as an individual Christian, whether the church does that or not, by a statement like this, right? So if the, end of, if the local church won't, I'm still obligated. Well, what if the, the person under consideration is not a member of this local church? What if, what if this, this person that I know, I've, I've, I've enjoyed a close brotherly relationship with this guy, but he's a member of a church across town. But I've found out he has left his wife. And he's living with another man. Oh, another, maybe, unfortunately, living. He's left his wife, and he's living with another woman. Now, he and I have been close, brotherly friends for many years. But he's not a member of this church. He's a member of that church yonder. Nothing I can do about it. And 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 that church won't withdraw from him because they they're one of those congregations that never withdraws from anybody. They just they don't do it because it's too hard and they don't like it, so they just ignore it. So he's a member over there. And that church is never going to withdraw from. They never withdraw from anybody. What am I supposed to do? He, 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 he and I are brothers. We've had a close, friendly, brotherly, social relationship for many years. Uh, you know, uh, we love to go fishing together. You know, we've been fishing buddies for years. What am I going to do? He's he's now left his wife and he's living with another woman. But the church has over there. The church over there hasn't withdrawn from him. And he's not even a member here. Our elders certainly couldn't lead us in withdrawing from him collectively. Because they they don't even have any oversight over that guy. So what am I going to do? Well, I got to do what Paul told Timothy: from such withdraw thyself. Okay. So that church over there didn't do their job, but I still have a job to do, right? And think about it this way: we're going to talk here in a minute. What we're going to reemphasize the purposes of this action here in a minute. But if I care for that guy's soul then I would want to do it anyway. Whether the church that he's a member from did it or not, whether he's not even under the oversight of our elders, but I care for his soul. I don't want him to be lost in hell. I want to do everything in my power to restore him. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to do my best to try and get him to repent, but if he, if he persists in his sin, I'm going to do what Paul told Timothy to do. I'm going to have to withdraw myself from that fellow, Right? I think that is important to understand. Uh, so we withdraw ourselves. What's involved in withdrawing ourselves from an unruly member? I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty generic statement. What does it mean, withdraw yourself? What do you mean? Uh, how do we do that? What's involved in that? Well, first of all, the word avoid is used. 
We looked at Romans 6, verse, Romans 16, verse 17. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. You have any question about that? Does that seem hard to understand? You know, sometimes people say, oh, that's just, that, oh, that whole thing just kind of confused me. I don't, yeah, I don't understand. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You have any problem with the instruction, avoid such people? You avoid them. That's what you do. I remember hearing about a fellow who uh, was seen out at a restaurant and he was, it, and he was at a table having dinner uh, with, with someone who had been withdrawn from by the local congregation. He said, well, what's, what am I supposed to do? They came in and we sat down. And what am I supposed to do? Well, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to avoid them. That's what you're supposed to do. That's not hard to understand, is it? Because we're trying to alert them to, the, to their undone spiritual situation. Avoid them. And then, maybe if that's not clear, I think these next couple expressions are very clear. Don't keep company with that person. And with such a one, know not to eat. Those expressions both come from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11. I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or extortioner, with such one, know not to eat. Notice, it uses the expression, do not keep company with that person. That would be identical to avoid him, right? This is talking about severing our social relationship with this person. We can't enjoy friendly relationships anymore because he has sinned and won't repent. What do you do? You avoid him. What do you do? You don't keep company with him. And then just to, Ill, uh, to emphasize that point, Paul says with such a one, no not to eat. Unfortunately, sometimes that's the only expression that anybody pays any attention to. That's the one that gets our attention. I can't eat with that person. I can't eat with that person. I won't eat with him. Well, you, you're not supposed to eat with him, but you're also not supposed to keep company with him. You're supposed to avoid him. You're supposed to sever that social relationship. And a social relationship is not exclusively about eating. Now, we love to eat. And a lot of times in, in our social relationships with people, we do engage in eating, but that's not exclusively. There's that guy over there I was talking about. You know, he goes, he's not a member of this church. He's a member of that church, Yantway. He has left his wife, and he is living with another woman. We have been fishing buddies for years. So, you know, I don't eat with him. I fish with him. That's okay, isn't it? It's okay if I keep going to fi if I keep going fishing with him as long as as long as we don't eat. You know, we we used to pack a, a lunch and and eat in the boat while we were fishing. I just will quit packing my lunch so I won't eat with him. No, avoid him. Don't keep company with him. Break that relationship so he knows things are not right. You need to repent. And that will. It, I tell you, if he in fact has been my fishing buddy for years, there's nobody maybe who has as much power to influence him as I do. Maybe if I tell him, we can't go fishing no more. I'd love to go fishing with you again. I hope we can, but this is more important. You have got to repent. You have got to make this right. And maybe I'm the one. Maybe I'm the one who has the most power to influence him. Again, he's not a member of this church. He's not under the oversight of our elders. They can't lead us in a collective action to discipline him. He's over there. He's a he was a member over there. And that church never withdraws from anybody. They don't do what the Bible says they're supposed to do about discipline. So I'm all, am I just then to do nothing? No, I love this man. He's been my fishing buddy for the last 30 years. I don't want to see him go to hell. What am I going to do? I'm going to avoid him. 
I'm going to not keep company with him. I'm going to not eat with him because I want to see him restored. Now, I'm going to let him know that that's what's behind that. And I'm going to explain to him, now, this is why we're not fishing together anymore. Because I can't. Because I just can't ignore what you're doing. And I can't just let you go happily on to hell. I have got to do what I can to wake you up and get you to repent. Do you see that? That's very straightforward, I think. Um, with such a one, not to keep company, and with such a one, no, not to eat. Again, stressing the, that we sever our social relationship with this person. We can't enjoy friendly relations anymore because they refuse to repent. One more important point, real important point. We're going to note him or mark him. We're going to withdraw ourselves from him, meaning avoid, not to keep company, not to eat with such one. But we're going to continue to admonish him as a brother. In Second Thessalonians chapter two or chapter three, rather, verses fourteen and fifteen, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. We're, this is a hard thing. I mean, it's, it's a really it's a, a tightrope act. We need to let him know that we can't have company with him, and we can't continue our friendly social relationship with him. But we need to do it in such a way that he knows that we desperately love him, we care for him, we want the best for him. We want to keep, we want to maintain a situation wherein we're able to admonish such a one. He's not our enemy. You know, he's not, you know, somebody that we hate or despise, can't stand aside. I can't stand aside that guy anymore. No, it's not like that. He's my brother. I, I, I love him. I, in fact, I love him so much, I'm willing to go to this extreme measure to try and restore him to faithfulness. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep that channel open. I'm going to keep admonishing. Now, again, the very same verse that says admonish him as brother says, have no company with him. I can't, I can't socialize with him anymore. I can't have company with him anymore. But I want to keep admonishing him as brother, because that's what this is all about anyway. I want to see him restored to faithfulness. All right. To, to whom is this action directed? We've identified that. How it's to be done? We've identified that. Let's talk about why this is important. Why would we do it? Well, bottom line, we do it because God said so. If we didn't understand it, or if we didn't agree with the, with the approach, or if we thought it won't work anyway, I mean, whatever we might think doesn't matter. God said do it, right? And so we do it. We do it to obey God. Someone says, I just don't go along with that idea. I, I just think that's too hard. That's too harsh. Who are you arguing with? You think it's too hard, too harsh, you don't want to do it? How many verses have we had up here on the, on the, on the chart tonight that says we're supposed to do it? Who are you arguing with? If you say, I don't, I don't like that, I don't agree with it, I'm not going to do that. Who are you arguing with? You're arguing with God, aren't you? I mean, it's, it's what the Bible says. We didn't come up with that. that. That's not our idea. That's God's idea. We do it, bottom line, to obey God. But don't forget, we're doing this for the sake of that lost brother or sister, too. We're doing this to try and restore that person to faithfulness. Now, that tells us we need to do this carefully and lovingly, we need to let that person know constantly that we love them desperately and we want them to be saved. We're doing it for their sake, that they could be spared, that they could be saved in the day of judgment. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14 and 15, we keep coming back to some of these same verses, but notice, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him. Why? That he may be ashamed. 
yeah, count him not as an enemy, but advise him as brother. We do this for the purpose of shaming him into the realization of the sin that he has committed and will not repent of. It, it's to alert him, to wake him up, to make him ashamed. You know, that's a strong word in itself, isn't it? You want to shame him? Yeah, I guess that's the word. Because that's the word we read here in the New Testament. Shame him into the realization of just how bad his shape is. Just how bad a condition he's let himself get into. Do this for him. In 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. There's, there's the motive. That his soul may be saved in the last day. That's why we're doing it. Is it pleasant? It is not pleasant at all. In fact, this is a pretty hard phrase right here, isn't it? Destruction of the flesh. <laughs> no, that, that doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? This whole thing, this is not pleasant. And, and does anybody enjoy doing this? I sure hope not. I, I sure hope that there's nobody here who takes delight in pursuing these obligations that we've been identifying tonight. If you, if you enjoy that, there's something wrong with you. We don't enjoy it. We don't want to do it. It's hard. But we do it because God said so. And because we love that erring brother and we want him to come back. We want to restore him to faithfulness. There's another reason, too, why we do that. And that is we do it for the sake of the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, that's that chapter that deals with that situation in Corinth where there was the man, the immoral man who wouldn't repent. And Paul told the church to take action against him. They had not taken that action. And so he rebukes them. He says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Paul told the church of Corinth that they, they, he rebuked them for not doing what they should have in disciplining the man who was a member among them. And he says, you need to purge out that leaven. No, leaven, you, we get the idea of leaven or yeast, how it spreads all the way through a lump of dough. Uh, leaven spreads. What happens if we allow a situation wherein there's a brother in the church and he's not been disciplined? What happens? Then his evil influence has the potential to spread, right? Paul said, purge that. And so one of, the, one of the reasons that this action needs to be taken uh, in a local congregation is to, to minimize the evil influence of a person who was a, a Christian, a, a member of the congregation, and he won't repent. Uh, he, he's, and, and so what, what happens when the church takes this disciplinary action? Several things happen. One thing happened is that that influence is removed from, from the congregation and others learn that such conduct cannot be tolerated among God's people. And so we do it for the sake of the church as well. A lesson to all uh, is, is gained. Finally, let's, let's talk about this expression, withdrawing fellowship. Remember I told you earlier, we need to really work hard to maintain biblical terminology here because if we don't, it opens up an argument that some make. Now, here's the argument. Let me explain the argument if I can. This guy, he was a member here, but he left the church. A good while back, he left the church. He may have even been one of those guys who said, I'm leaving. Oh, I don't want to be a member there anymore. I'm going. I'm leaving. Well, someone says, well, he withdrew himself. You know, he, he, he left here and he went off to some denominational group, you know. But, but he said as he's leaving, I never intend to be back. I don't want to be a member. They just take my name off the roll. 
I don't, I don't want to be a member there anymore. I'm withdrawing myself from membership in that congregation. He even said that as he was going. So someone says, well, we can't withdraw from him because he's withdrawn himself. How can you, how can you withdraw fellowship from someone who has already withdrawn their fellowship from us? He's, he's not in fellowship within us, with us anymore. He withdrew himself. We're not in fellowship. By his action, he took an action that ended our fellowship. We're not in fellowship with him anymore. How can we withdraw fellowship when we're not in fellowship? Do you see the flaw of that reasoning? That whole reasoning is is based on non-biblical terminology. In other words, you can't withdraw fellowship from someone who's already withdrawn their fellowship. It's not about so. It's not about our fellowship. The, the New Testament never uses the word or phrase "withdraw fellowship." He may have said that. He may have said, "I don't want to be a member of that church anymore. I'm leaving. I'm withdrawing my fellowship from that group." What, what can what's left to do? Withdraw yourselves, because that's what the instruction is anyway, right? We withdraw ourselves. And so, we, because what he's decided to do, we sever our social relationship with that fellow. We can't enjoy pleasant company with him anymore. He was, now that, that other guy I was describing was my fishing buddy. This guy has been my golfing buddy. Mike, we've enjoyed playing golf with him all these years, and now he's done this. What are we going to do? We're going to avoid him. We're not going to play golf with him anymore. Right? He, he, he withdrew his fellowship maybe, but we can still withdraw ourselves from a friendly social relationship with him. Why would we do it? Well, for his sake. So that we, so that we could try to restore him. Right? I can still withdraw myself. You can still withdraw yourself. We can withdraw ourselves. Even though he has made effort to end our fellowship relationship, we can still withdraw ourselves. Again, that's why we want to be careful about our terminology. Uh, withdraw fellowship is not in the Bible. Withdraw yourselves is. Why would we do it? Why would we pursue that of a fellow who's withdrawn himself from us? Well, we would do it because it's still God's command. You know, it's, it, the command is still there. He can't short circuit the plan of God that is in place to try and restore him. It's still God's command that we do that. He still needs it. He needs it bad. He needs it real bad. Uh, and so we do it because he's still a lost brother who needs to repent. And so we still do it because he still needs it. And the church still needs it, as we were just pointing out. Uh, there's a lesson to be learned by others as well when we pursue this activity the way God said that it should be done. Not a pleasant topic. Not one that we like to talk about. Certainly not one that we like to do. But it is definitely a Bible subject. As we said earlier... Notice how many times it's mentioned in the New Testament. There's quite a bit of teaching on that subject in the New Testament. Uh, and, if we will allow it to be so, the teaching in the New Testament is very straightforward about this procedure. We just need to have the faith to follow God's plan. You know, I really think that's what's at question. When, when you hear folks saying, I don't think that works, you know. I've never seen that work effectively. Well, maybe they never did, but we have. We've seen it work right here at College View where disciplinary action works. It works. God's plan works when we put it into practice. And so you can't say, I'm not going to do it because I don't think it works. Well, you're arguing with God when you say that, and you're den denying the evidence. The evidence is it does work when we do it right. 
doesn't always work for the lost brother. Sometimes that lost brother will not repent. But it still works because we're doing God's will and we're doing it His way. All right? I appreciate you listening carefully to what I had to say. I'd be glad to, to talk with you about any questions that it may raise in your mind. Uh, just to talk to me later and we'll, we'll, we'll try to iron that out if it leaves some, if I haven't been clear if it's left some question in your mind. Thanks for listening. We're going to end with a song of invitation. This lesson certainly has not been one that encourages someone to become a Christian, but we wouldn't want to end without providing that opportunity. If you're a Christian who's fallen away, we beg you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. Let us know while we stand and sing this song.